Well, good morning, all. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, coming this morning. Uh, I'm sure it was some effort after the holidays to get up and go to church, especially if you are a Buckeye fan. It was particularly (laughs) difficult. I imagine the temptation to stay home in bed with the sheets uh, over you was uh, uh, pretty uh, tempting to do. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but we actually give out bonus points for those who come the Sunday after Christmas. Uh, you'll find that in uh, Second Hesitations, chapter 2, verse 14. And I hope you had a great Christmas and uh, a great new year. I'm reading today from uh, the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Well, through Advent, we talked about what it means that Jesus came to save us. Today, we want to talk about how we can stay close to Jesus and and how we can continue to grow in, in our faith with him, how we can go deeper with Christ to grow in love and and to grow in our faith. Uh, This letter was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to Titus, who was overseeing the churches on the island of Crete. And in verse 11, Paul tells us why God sent Jesus into this world. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, isn't that amazing? That grace came wrapped in diapers, <laughs> in a manger full of hay. Well, Paul goes on to, to tell us that this grace has a, a twofold purpose to help us say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and then to help us live lives that are self controlled, upright, and godly. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message. He says, to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. And he says we're to live this way, waiting for Jesus' second coming, which Paul calls the blessed hope. So how do we do this? How do we say no to to self-destructive behavior and, and live lives that honor God? I mean, Paul makes it sound so simple, doesn't he? He, he just basically is saying, say no. <laughs> say no to the past way of living. I don't know about you, but I don't find that quite so easy. <laughs> For me, it's kind of a challenge. Well, the key word in our text is grace. And you can't understand the Christian life at all unless you understand Grace, And when you understand it and when you experience it, then it will set you free like nothing else you've ever experienced. And here's why it's so important. If you read what Paul says, spiritual growth comes from grace. 
It is grace, not our own will, that teaches us to say no. It is God's love for us that brings about the change that we're looking for. Now, other passages that Paul wrote seem contradictory to this. In fact, if you were to read Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and, and trembling. So I scratch my head thinking, okay, Paul, which is it? Is it God's grace or is it my effort? Is, is it me doing it with fear and trembling that, that makes my spiritual growth occur? It sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. So who's responsible? And that's a really important question. Paul says in Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that means that our role in, in going deeper in faith, going deeper in love, uh, is that, that we have a part to play. That you and I, we need to learn what it means to, to, to live and to walk by faith. We call that discipleship. It's being formed in the image of Christ. And so Paul is urging each member of the church to keep working at his or her personal salvation. But, but Paul is also thinking of the health and well-being of the whole church that each of them and all of us together have to pay attention to this. That it requires our time, it requires our, our energy, it requires uh, our focus. And so when Paul says to work it out with fear and trembling, he doesn't mean to have a lot of anxiety about it. It doesn't mean to worry about it. Am I going to be saved or am I doomed to, to hell? What he, just, what he means is we need to give it our utmost care and diligence, that we need to be aware that we have a part to play, that we have a responsibility. And then he says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, it, this isn't a project that you're doing on your own, that God is, is at work in you, even your desire uh, to, to, uh, to live a fully devoted life of Christ, that comes from God. I mean, look how hard it is to change ourselves. You ever tried uh, to change just one bad habit? Uh, how'd that go for you? Yeah, not so well. And we think that we can change other people. How many of you, before your marriage vows, thought, well, uh, she's not perfect now. <laughs> but give me a couple years, you know, and, and, and I'll change him. Or I'll change her. Yeah. Now, Thomas Akempis wrote in his classic book, The Imitation of Christ, he said, Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself <laughs> as you wish to be. No truer words ever spoken. So we have a role. We don't call the shots. We can't control it. Richard Foster says the needed change within us is God's work, not ours. The demand is for an inside job, and only God can work from the inside. So I would compare it to kind of like, like going to sleep. You can't make yourself go to sleep. I mean, it seems like sometimes the harder I try to make myself go to sleep, the more awake I am. You ever notice that? But there are things that we can do. We can, we can get into a dark room. We can lie down on a soft bed. We can, we can put our smartphone into another room or turn it off and let go of the day's troubles. And as we do that, sleep comes. It's the same way with our spiritual growth. 
We can't control it. We can't manufacture it. It's not about you and I coming up with some kind of program that has predictable results. But on the other hand, we're not passive. We have to stay connected to God. And let me say one other important thing. That we don't, we don't do this to make God love us more. God already loves us. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. So what place do these practices, these, these habits have in our lives? They are a means of grace. In other words, they allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can change us, so he can transform us. They do not earn us favor with God. They place us in an environment where God can bless us and mold us into the image of Christ. So as we read through the Gospels, we see Jesus practicing certain disciplines. We see him finding time for prayer. We see him practicing solitude, simple and and sacrificial living. We see him practice generosity and and serving and and meditate upon God's word. And we see Jesus constantly inviting others to join him in these practices. His followers continue the practices. We we see them in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, we we see the early Christians uh, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to meeting together in homes for the breaking of bread, for prayer, for sharing their resources with whoever had a need, and finally worshiping in the temple. And so these disciplines became a, a regular part of the practice of faithful Christians who were tired of a shallow faith, who, who were ready to be done with, with, with superficial living and, and wanted to go deeper with the Lord. I mean, that's what drove me uh, in my early years to begin searching for a, a set of habits, some, some disciplines, some, some practices that would help me to grow spiritually. I mean, I got to that point where I thought there's got to be more to the spiritual life than what I'm experiencing. And the problem was I was hit or miss in my prayer life, in my giving, in my Bible reading. I had no, I had no plan. I had no, no structure to grow. When I was ordained an elder, my superintendent gave me a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And it was a guidebook to these disciplines. And it was exactly what I needed. It had more impact upon my life than, than any other book I've ever read, save the Bible. In fact, I, I had it signed by Foster a few years ago when he came here to Cincinnati to, to speak, and he wrote, and he said, to Mark, I hope this book will continue to be helpful to you in some small way. Small way. It's, it's been huge. I found a spiritual director who coached me in my prayer life. I, I began tithing. I began uh, learning to practice silence, which is a real challenge for me. I became a part of a small group that would hold me accountable And it was these disciplines that began to change me, to help me to grow in my faith and in my love. Well, about 15 years ago, our our leadership team here at church began to think of a way to to help our members grow, to think of some disciplines that that we could bring to the, the congregation. After a lot of prayer and conversation, we boiled them down to six practices. Now, there's a lot more, but we thought that if we could get everyone in our church to practice these six habits, that, that it could be huge. It could, it could bring significant spiritual growth. And we call them the six habits because we may not know what a discipline means. We may not know what a practice means, but everybody knows what a habit is. And we've written them down the hallway there in the West Wing. If you go through there, you'll, you'll see them painted on the wall. 
So let's review them again, these six habits. And the first is this, to spend time with God daily. Folks, I find this to be life-changing. Spending time with God on a daily basis is the number one habit that will help you to grow. Whether you're a brand new Christian or whether you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, you cannot neglect this. It's critical. Because you see, it's in prayer that we begin to think God's thoughts. It's in prayer that we begin to desire the things that God desires. It's in prayer that we begin to love the things that God loves. It's in prayer that we begin to see things from God's point of view. And to get started, we simply need to choose a time of day to do that. We need to make an appointment with God. We need to put it on our, our calendar, a time and a place every day to, to, so it becomes a routine. I like to do mine first thing in the morning. Other people like theirs last thing at night or sometimes at noon. It doesn't matter. Find a time and a place that works best for you. Now, I begin by reading my Bible. I use a, a Bible reading plan, plus I have this great um, phone app called YouVersion. And, and there's a devotional on there by an Anglican priest by the name of Nicky Gumbel. And, and every day he has these amazing devotional thoughts, plus it takes me through the whole Bible in a year. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, Pastor, I, I'm not a reader. Well, guess what? This app will actually read it to you. So no excuses, men, those of you who are not readers. Now, so sometimes if I'm feeling lazy and I don't want to open my eyes, I, I just push that play button, and the Bible is read to me. I just have to be careful not to fall asleep. And what I find is that if I listen, God will begin to speak to me through the Scriptures. In fact, I would say this is where God most clearly speaks to me. And then I, 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 then I spend time in prayer. I pray for our world. I pray for those nations in turmoil. I pray for our country. I pray for our leaders. I, I, I pray for those who are sick. I pray for friends and strangers and family members. I, I pray for you, the church. I pray for our staff and for our leaders. And then I, I spend time confessing my shortcomings. That's always the longest part of my prayer time. And then I end up with praise and thanksgiving. Spend time with God daily. Number two, practice generosity. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about generosity. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it has these remarkable words. It says, all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Isn't that amazing? In the early church, there was this incredible, simple generosity. There was this graciousness that pervaded the fellowship in such a way that, that personal possessions and belongings were no longer a big deal. That if somebody needed help, then the other members of the church did whatever they could to help out. The Bible says the community saw this and they marveled. Verse 47 says they had the goodwill of the people. And so the public looked at the, the sacrificial lifestyle of these early Christian movement. They, they saw how they cared for each other and, and they wanted to be a part of it. I think that could happen here. Well, what would it mean for, for our witness in, in this city if, if people looked at this church, if they saw a, a lifestyle of generosity, they, they saw big-hearted people and they said, that's what I'm looking for, that's what I want to be a part of. 
In fact, just a couple months ago, uh, a new person sent me an email. And they, and they said, Mark, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure about you. I'm really not sure about this church. But I see what you're doing in the community. And I want to be a part of something like that. You see, if we live that kind of lifestyle, we wouldn't be able to keep folks away. Now, of course, it's hard to be generous if you are over your head in debt. So just a reminder, we're having a financial peace class coming up January 16th. It will help you to learn how to reduce your debt and help you to live generously. Number three, habit number three, be a part of a small group. See, the truth is we all need each other. We need to be in community. We need friendships. And the church exists to support you through community. Now, the small group model is a model that Jesus used. I mean, think about it. When he wanted to train up leaders for his new movement, what did he do? He got together 12 of them and put them in a small group, didn't he? And he lived with them, and he modeled for them, and he, and he taught them, and, and, and he lived this new way of living. And then before he left, he said, okay, now I want you to go out and do what you saw me do. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, several of Paul's letters are sent to people who had churches meeting in their homes. In fact, home meetings were, the, were at the heart of the disciple-making process. They remained the most pervasive form of church structure up until the time of Christianity's legalization in the 4th century in the Roman Empire. But not only are small groups biblical, they're also historical. You see, small groups were at the heart of the Wesleyan, of the, of the Methodist revival. See, Wesley discovered that the people who were coming to faith in Christ during his preaching were quickly backsliding, that is, going back to their pre-Christian lifestyles. And so he organized what he called classes. They were simply small groups where people could care for each other. And so small groups were at the heart of the Methodist movement as well. And we find that it still works well today. In fact, uh, uh, small groups are the primary way that we use to help people to go deeper with Christ. And you can join one to start the new year. Uh, our website makes it really easy. Go to the, go to the, uh, the Grow uh, page and, and you'll find a, a, a list of groups. You can click on the group placement form and fill it out and, and our small group um, person, our director, will contact you and help you to get into a small group. Number four, we need to be a contagious Christian. We need to be willing to share what God has done for us, for others. You see, the purpose of the church is not to be a holy huddle. The purpose of the church is not to hide behind these walls, but is to reach out beyond our walls to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors. Our mission is to share Christ. And folks, this is one of the hardest things of the six habits for Christians to practice. The thing is, we make it more difficult than what it is. We think we have to know the Bible inside and out. We think we have to know all the church beliefs and doctrines before we do that. But really, it's simple. It's just sharing your story of faith with somebody else. In the ninth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus heals a man born blind. And when he is trying to answer questions from a bunch of skeptics, he simply says this. He says, I don't know the answers to all of your theological questions. But one thing I do know, he said, that once I was blind, but now I, what? I see. That's all there is to it. 
In the 20s, Mordecai Ham shared his faith with Billy Graham in a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. Some years later, Billy shared his faith with my sister Anne at one of his crusades. Anne shared her faith with my mother, who shared her faith with me. And I shared with my daughters, and now my daughters are sharing with their children. That's all it is. I once was blind, but now I see. Number five, serving others. You see, folks, when I serve others, I'm serving God. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that whatever you did to one of the least of these, you did it for God. Now, I don't do it out of duty. I don't do it out of fear. I don't do it out of shame. I don't do it out of guilt. I do it out of gratitude for all that he's done for me. I mean, think about it. God has created you. He has saved you. He has forgiven you of your sins. He's given your life meaning, and he's given your life purpose. And most of all, he's given us eternal life. We owe everything to him. One of my favorite times with my family uh, when they were growing up was, was taking our daughters with us on a mission trip to Redbird Mission in eastern Kentucky. And it was there that my daughter Krista um, learned about serving and about mission. And today, she'll go anywhere if she gets the opportunity to help other people. In fact, this spring, she's going on our Jamaica trip. I like to think that it was on that mission trip that, that got her started. What a cool thing to begin developing now in your children and in your grandchildren this idea of serving others. Finally, it's worship. My friends, worship is the heart of the church's life. And that's why you and I were created, to give praise and, and, and to worship God. A remarkable thing, as soon after the resurrection, Christians began to gather on, on Sundays to sing and to pray and, and to celebrate the Holy Communion and to be refreshed with the Holy Spirit and to hear God's Word. And for 2,000 years, unbroken, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, Christians have gathered on Sunday morning to worship the living God. And I don't know about you, but I find that worship more than anything else helps me to stay focused on God and on my purpose for life in what is otherwise a chaotic and crazy world. Folks, I want to challenge you to practice these six habits. Because what I've discovered over and over again, that those who are willing, those who are willing to commit themselves to it will grow in their relationship with Christ. These six habits are the core of Christian practice. And they are absolutely essential for your spiritual health. And our goal is that each and every one of you will begin practicing them. Whether you're just starting off in your spiritual life or whether you, you are a fully devoted follower of Christ, it doesn't matter. But think about it. In three days, we're going to start a, a new year and a new decade. And I can't think of a better way to start a, a new year than to make a decision today to practice these six habits for the next 365 days. Hopefully you got one of the cards when you walked in today, but, but if you didn't, if you'll raise your hand, well, one, of our ushers, one of our ushers will bring one to you. Anybody not get one? Good. We have the best ushers, right, in, in the city of Cincinnati. Amen. They are absolutely amazing. So if you'll make a covenant with God to practice these six habits, 
at the top, you'll see a space. Just print your name there. Please don't write your name because a lot of you, your handwriting is pretty bad, okay? <laughs> I'm just being honest. Can't read it. So print your name and then turn it in. The ushers will collect them as we leave today. And they'll have a basket or someplace where you can put them. And then I will, print, I will put my name at the bottom. I will pray over these cards. And then we're going to mail them back to you. Going to pray that God will just use this to, to change your life, to help you go deeper with him, to grow in your faith and your love in the coming year. But before you do that, there's a prayer that Methodists have, have prayed since at the beginning of a new year for centuries, and I want us to pray that today. You'll find it up on, the, up on the board, up on the screen. There it is. Let's pray it together, shall we? I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee, nor laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.